Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. It's our last show of the year and the season today, Chris. I know, it goes by very fast, Jeff. It's been a very exciting season so far. And today we have a special guest, Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! She is in Copenhagen covering the climate change talks and she managed to find some time to talk with us today. And fantastic. We also have Penny Stewart, president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, who's going to talk to us about the state of Canadian university funding. And we have author and activist Tony Clark. He is the founder and director of the Polaris Institute. He's appeared Alert Radio before. And he'll be talking also about Copenhagen. And uh, he's an expert on Alberta's tar sands. Wow. We also have Music is the Weapon with Mitch Padala. The headlines and around the left in seven days. That and much more on Alert Radio. And now for the alert headlines for the week of December 10th, 2009. In Copenhagen, Canada has already received a climate change award, but not one to brag about. Canada received a third-place fossil award for an overwhelming lack of ambition in resolving climate change issues. The fossil awards were handed out during the Climate Change Conference by the Climate Action Network, a coalition of over 450 worldwide non-governmental organizations. Meanwhile, five B.C. citizens who say the federal government is not taking enough action on climate change staged a peaceful sit-in protest at the constituency office of North Vancouver Conservative MP Andrew Saxton. Greenpeace activists also hung two banners from the roof of Canada's Parliament buildings calling for an end to tar sands development and climate justice. A regional bloc of West African states has called for the military junta ruling Guinea to immediately hand over power to civilians. The group ECOWAS urged the junta, which took control of the country in a coup in December last year, to install a transitional authority and to organize elections in which none of its members would be allowed to run. There are fears a power struggle between rival military commanders could drag the country into civil war and destabilize the region. Attempts have been made to break into the offices of one of Canada's leading climate scientists. The victim was Andrew Weaver, a University of Victoria scientist and a key contributor to the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Individuals have attempted to impersonate technicians in a bid to access data from his office, and an old computer was stolen, Weaver claims. The attempted breaches on top of the hacking of files from British climate researcher Bill Jones, have heightened fears that climate change deniers are mounting a campaign to discredit the work of leading meteorologists during the Copenhagen Climate Summit. Women and girls in Afghanistan continue to suffer high levels of violence and discrimination eight years after the fall of the Taliban regime, according to Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch released a new report yesterday accusing the Afghan government of failing to bring killers of prominent women in public life to justice and creating an environment of impunity for those who target women. The report presents detailed cases of attacks on women in public life, violence against women and examples of child marriages and forced marriages. South Africa has offered to slow down the growth of its greenhouse gas emissions if rich countries agree to expand aid for poor nations to cope with climate change.
The South African presidency's website published a statement yesterday pledging a 34% reduction in projected carbon emissions by 2020 and a 42% reduction by 2025. The offer is conditional on an effective international agreement and the provision of financial and technological support from the international community to allow the target to be reached. Richard Goldstone, author of a UN report on Israel's Operation Cast Lead, has received the first annual Stockholm Human Rights Award. The award, given jointly by International Bar Association, the International Legal Assistance Consortium, and the Swedish Bar Association, was awarded to Goldstone in recognition of his outstanding contributions to the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms. Despite the aggressive personal attacks against Richard Goldstone, no one has been able to find any factual faults with the Goldstone report on the analysis of the Israeli incursion into the Gaza Strip in December of 2008. In Bolivia, President Evo Morales has been re-elected in a landslide victory. Unofficial results show Morales won the December 6th vote with 63% of the ballots cast. Voters also gave his Movement Towards Socialism party a majority in both houses of the Bolivian Congress. Morales ran on a platform of continuing to expand indigenous rights and redistribute wealth from Bolivia's natural gas resources. Morales says the victory in Bolivia is not just for Bolivians, but is dedicated to the people and to anti-imperialism. Thousands of students rallied against the Iranian government on December 7th at universities across Iran. The protests took place on National Student Day and set off battles in and around campuses. Protesters hurled rocks and set fires amid clouds of tear gas, while a vast deployment of police officers and militia members used chains, truncheons and stun guns to beat back chanting protesters. As the protesters began chanting death to the dictator, the police periodically beat them back with batons. The renewed protests come at a delicate time for Iran's government, which recently rejected an international proposal to transport the country's uranium abroad for processing. In Greece, clashes erupted between police and protesters at rallies marking the one-year anniversary of the police killing of a teenage boy. The fatal shooting of 15-year-old Alexandros Grigoropoulos set off Greece's worst unrest in over 30 years. Greek police fired tear gas at protesters as they marched in Athens and other cities. Over a thousand delegates from 42 countries have signed up to participate in the December 31st Gaza Freedom March that will mark the one-year anniversary of the Israeli invasion and call for an end to the siege. The international delegates hope to join some 50,000 Palestinians inside Gaza, including students, teachers, health workers, women's groups, farmers and fishermen. The march will start in a neighborhood in northern Gaza in which nearly every building was devastated during Israel's attack and continues for three miles to the Erez border with Israel. This initiative is designed to draw worldwide attention to the ongoing siege that continues to imprison the 1.5 million Palestinians in Gaza. And those are the alert headlines for December 10th, 2009. And now around the left for the week of December 10th, 2009. On December 12th, meet at City Hall in Toronto to protest the transit fare increases. The transit fare hike of 25 cents per fare and almost $30 for a monthly pass will kick in on January the 3rd. 
For poor and working people in Toronto, especially for families, transit costs are already too high and often unaffordable. Riders already cover more than 80% of the Toronto Transit Commission's operating costs, and it is by far the least funded mass transit system in North America. Meeting begins at 1 o'clock to demand that the public does not pay for the financial shortfalls and deficits of Toronto's public transit system. December 11th to 14th is being labeled the Weekend of Global Action on Climate Change, and events are being held across the country to demonstrate the severity of our climate crisis. To find events in your community, go to www.climateactionnetwork.ca. Some of the recommendations are to visit your MP's constituency office to demand Canada support a fair, ambitious, and binding goal at the climate change talks in Copenhagen. On Saturday, December 12th, candlelight vigils will be and rallies will be held in communities across Canada. On December the 13th, a coalition of downtown Eastside community groups in Vancouver are marching to protest the Olympic Kidnap the Homeless Act. This act is a new piece of legislation that allows police to detain and use force on homeless people to compel them into shelters. To join in the march, meet at the police station at 312 Main Street at Cordova at 3.30 p.m. The annual holiday appeal for class war prisoners will be held at the Steelworkers Hall in Toronto on December 11th. This fundraising event will include speeches, music, food and refreshments, as well as a special presentation on straight state repression and class struggle defense in capitalist Canada. Tickets are $5 in advance, $8 at the door, and it begins at 7 p.m. on December 11th. The Toronto Climate Campaign and Students Against Climate Change are hosting an indoor rally on December 12th at the University of Toronto. They're hoping to send a message to the world leaders at Copenhagen to put people and the planet first. These talks may be the world's last chance to avert a global catastrophe. What is needed is urgent and effective action. This rally is being held at the Earth Sciences Auditorium at the University of Toronto on December the 12th at 3 p.m. And that is Around the Left for December 10th, 2009. Amy Goodman is an award-winning journalist and host of Democracy Now!, a daily radio and TV broadcast which can be seen at democracynow.org. She is also an author, most recently, of a book called Breaking the Sound Barrier. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. It is my distinct pleasure now to welcome Amy Goodman to the program. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Jeff, it's great to be with you. Well, I'd like to ask you first if you had any trouble crossing the Danish border, Amy. <laughs> Came in through Iceland, and uh, no, in fact, I was quite surprised that when we made our way into Copenhagen uh, that there wasn't even any immigration officials in uh, the Danish capital to stop us at all. You just come off the plane and onto the streets of Copenhagen. So that was terrific. Certainly a very different experience that I had Oh, just over a week ago. Well, let's talk about that. You were going to speak at the Vancouver Public Library and tell us your experience at the British Columbia border as you tried to cross into Canada. Well, um, it was the day before U.S. Thanksgiving, and um, uh, we were on our Breaking the Sound Barrier tour. It's the title of my uh, new book. It's a book of columns uh, that I've written over the last three years, edited by Dennis Moynihan, and I was traveling with my editor, Dennis, 
and uh, and another colleague. And we were driving up from Seattle, thought we'd do two days of fundraisers for community radio stations in British Columbia as well as in Victoria. And then when the holiday was over, head back down to uh, to Washington, Oregon, uh, then to Washington, D.C., and continue. We've been traveling at that point for a few weeks. So we thought nothing of driving up to the border um, there. We were, you know, it was the routine, asked for the passports. We handed them over. But what happened next was not routine. Um, they flagged us down, uh, told us to pull over to go into the border crossing facility. And there um, the interrogation began. I was called up to the counter by one of the border guards, um, fully armed, and along with another guard. And um, they said they wanted my notes. I said, my notes? And they said, my notes for the speech that, that night. Uh, it was Wednesday night, um, the night before Thanksgiving, and I was giving an address at the Vancouver Public Library at a fundraiser for three community radio stations. I was very taken aback. I also happened to speak extemporaneously, so I don't exactly have notes. And I said, well, I don't really have. They said, we want the notes now. I went out to the car, and I got a copy of Breaking the Sound Barrier, and I brought it in. They said, no, they want notes. I said, these really, they could consider my notes because I read excerpts of the columns, and I comment on them. Um, He said, all right, what are you going to talk about? And I said, actually, I start with the last column in the book, which is about Tommy Douglas, the premier of Saskatchewan. Uh, he didn't crack a smile. In fact, it's interesting, you know, breaking the sound barrier, the book is published by a Canadian publisher. Ah. But um, uh, and so I said, you know, we're talking about Tommy Douglas because uh, what he is most famous for is pioneering national health care across Canada. And we have this debate going in the United States. Also, interestingly, he's the grandfather of the famous actor Kiefer Sutherland, star of 24 and other TV series. Um, well, I didn't even get that far because the border guard stopped me and said, what else? I said, what else? He said, what else are you going to talk about? And I said, oh, I, I guess they'd be talking about global warming. What else? Well, um, the global economic meltdown. Now, he's taking notes. Another guard is reading the book. Um, the guard is also inputting everything I'm saying into a computer. Uh, so there's sort of two sets of notes going on here. They're taking the notes, not mine. And he said, what else are you talking about? Um, I said, well, global warming, global economic meltdown, Tommy Douglas. The, you know, and I thought, well, maybe is this what he's concerned about? I said, I, it's a public lecture, though. I said, I'll be talking about the bombing of Iraq and Afghanistan. And he said, what else? I said, well, that pretty much does it. And he said, you're not talking about the Olympics? I said, the Olympics? You mean when President Obama went to Copenhagen to try to get the Olympics um, in Chicago? And he said, you didn't get them. I said, I know that. Um, he said, no, I'm talking about the Olympics here in 2010 in Canada. I was completely baffled by what he was saying. I said, no, I wasn't planning to talk about the Olympics. And he just kept on asking on the verge of badgering me. You're saying you're not talking about the Olympics? I said, yes, I was not planning to talk about the Olympics. He didn't believe me clearly. He was incredulous, and he told me to sit down. They went out to the car, and they were going through it with a fine-tooth comb. It's pouring rain outside. We were so late at this point to the talk, I don't know, an hour and a half or so. And I went out to see what they were doing. And at that point, they were on one of my colleagues' computers. They were going through our notes inside the car. And they finally came in and told me to come follow them into a back room. 
And I went in there and they took my photograph, made four copies and took photographs of Dennis Moynihan and my other colleague. And they then attached them to documents, which they stapled in our passports. And I said, I wasn't aware we needed a visa to come into Canada. And he said, these are control documents. I opened them and saw that we had to leave by Friday. This was Wednesday night. Um, and we made our way to the Vancouver Public Library. I was very shaken by this, felt very violated. I mean, it's not only a violation personally, um, uh, you know, when the state goes through your possessions, but a violation of me professionally as a journalist. You know, if they're going through my documents and they can and going through the computers, they can be looking at sources. And it's a violation of the whole profession and not only a violation of journalism, but of the public's right to know. Because if journalists feel harassed, if they're interrogated, if they're detained, um, if they're being monitored and surveilled, you're going to get less information, the public is. And that is really a threat to a democratic society because I think the free flow of information is the currency of a democracy, and it's very important. Well, Amy, you... Um, you were in Copenhagen for that very reason. You have uh, taken great trouble and expense to travel to uh, from New York to Copenhagen, and you're the only broadcasting uh, program that's live and covering it? That's right. We're here for two weeks. Um, this is what some describe as the most important um, you know, diplomatic meeting in uh, world history. That's how Bill McKibben called it. He founded 350.org. Um, uh, and... But I actually don't see it as just a critical diplomatic meeting, but as a summit of grassroots leaders and activists around the world. As we walked in the first day, there was a sign outside the um, outside of the Bella Center where the conference is taking place that said, politicians talk, leaders act. And I think that about sums it up. There's a lot of talk going on inside, but there's a lot of organizing. Um, that is happening, not among the diplomats necessarily, although there is a lot when you when it comes to the developing world, a tremendous amount of simmering anger um, right now because you have Latin America, Asia, Africa. These are countries um, within these a- areas that have suffered tremendously from global warming and not at their own hand. Um, that global warming caused by countries like the United States, the biggest polluter, uh, the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. You know, the U.S. has something like 4% of the population with something like a quarter of the um, responsible for a quarter of the uh, global of the greenhouse gas emissions. And this is very serious. They want reparations. They're talking about paying off the debt, not charity, a debt. Um and the anger is starting to uh, break out in different ways. Today, inside the center, um, uh, the Pan-African Climate Change Group started to shouting uh, and demanding there be a final treaty. Then there was this creative action on the part of Friends of the Earth and uh, Avaz.org, A-V-A-A-Z.org. Uh, these were um, four people who were dressed as aliens, you know, like grade B movie uh green skin, white moon suits, and they were saying, take me to your leaders, take me to your climate leaders. Um, they were making demands for a signed binding treaty. And that isn't what's happening here in this two weeks, at least according to President Obama. And now the latest news that just been leaked is that there has been a deal struck 
Um, this is according to the Guardian newspaper, developing countries reacting furiously to a draft agreement that would hand more power to rich nations, sidelining the UN's negotiating role and abandoning the Kyoto Protocol. Um, the, as the Guardian put it, the climate talks are in disarray after developing countries reacted furiously to these leaked documents that show that world leaders will next week be asked to sign an agreement that hands more power to rich countries. Um, and sidelines the UN's role in all future climate change negotiations, um, setting unequal limits on per capita carbon emissions for developed and developing countries. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on. And whenever you have a mass meeting like this, the diplomats inside and then outside the perimeter, just thousands of people, there's Climaforum 09, where people like Naomi Klein spoke, um, of course, you know her in Canada very well, as people yes. do all over the world, Nemo Bassi of uh, Environmental Rights Action of Nigeria, um, and many others. When you have the level of activists and activism all over Copenhagen that we're seeing and organizing for actually protests next week as well, but inspiring people all over the world, uh, some of whom didn't want to increase their carbon footprint by coming, and others, of course, who couldn't afford to come. You know, this is very important, the beginning of something extremely significant. This is Alert Radio. We are speaking to Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Um, We'd just like to give you one last opportunity, Amy, to... uh, Extend the mission statement of Democracy Now! We, we broadcast at UMFM, a campus and college community radio station. Uh, a message to our listeners as to why you do what you do. To go to where the silence is. Um, the fact that we are the only global daily TV, radio, internet broadcast that is coming out of here, news hour every day, um, you know, is very sad because... I mean, it was the same with the Battle of Seattle. Now, um, we were not alone. It was really the birth of the indie media movement. But when my colleague Juan Gonzalez, the co-host of Democracy Now!, who also writes for the New York Daily News, a big mainstream newspaper, um, wanted to come with us, he told his editors, and they said, the what? The WT what? The World Trade Organization? Of course not. You can't go. So he came with us. And wouldn't you know it, of course, they're calling him every day for updates and reports as if they had sent them uh, themselves. Democracy Now! is about giving voice to the grassroots as people organize, as they mobilize, as people um, gather, and as also people are isolated and alone. It's really connecting the dots. That's our commitment, to be there, to give voice to those who aren't usually heard, and also to bring people who are not usually in dialogue together to have the debates and discussions about the most important issues of the day. War and peace, life and death, global warming, global warring, the global economic meltdown. Um, that's why we're here in Copenhagen. Very proud to be here with the whole team as we broadcast each day from the outside and from within. Well, Amy Goodman, I do just want to let you know regarding your experiences at the Canadian border, on behalf of all of our listeners, you are most welcome in our country, and we are sorry for what happened. Well, thanks so much, Jeff, and keep up your great work with Radio Alert. Thank you.
This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. I'm joined now by Tony Clark, founder and director of the Polaris Institute, which, as its website says, is designed to enable citizen movements to develop new skills and tools for democratic social change. He is also author of Tar Sands Showdown, Canada and the New Politics of Oil in an Age of Climate Change. Welcome back to Alert Radio, Tony Clark. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Now, as head of the Polaris Institute, you are a professional educator and an agitator for social change. Now, in this, the opening week of the historic Copenhagen Copenhagen Talks on Climate Change, we want you to share your thoughts on how to accelerate action to stop climate change. Well, I think it's already underway to some extent. I mean, I think that uh, the the big problem, of course, is that uh, Canada is way behind in terms of uh, being able to, in any way, measure up to the challenges that are fed, that are being uh, faced today. So, the question is how to mobilize uh, how to mobilize Canadians to recognize the extent to which their government and uh, the leadership, political and economic elite in this country is uh, moving in the opposite direction to where we need to move. And I think a lot of this has to do with where things are going to happen with the youth. I think the youth are on the cutting edge of this. This is the, this is the set of issues that faces their generation. It is a result of uh, generations gone by that have messed it up and have created the kind of uh, uh, of uh, climate uh, chaos that uh, we are about to enter and the kind of industrial system uh, that has contributed to that and has is, uh, has uh, set the stage for that to happen. So I think that what we need to do is to see uh, 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 really at the heart of this is, is going to be, I think, the emergence of a major uh, 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 frontal uh, uh, a uh, common front, if you will, of young people that are going to lead the way in uh, in making this uh, in making this happen, and I think that's what we need to look forward to and and hope that it's going to happen. There is already a significant uh, uh, alliance of groups across this country: environmental groups, uh, social justice groups, uh, some parts of the labor movement that are coming together in a common front. And more of this is going to happen in the future, but we must see in many ways uh, the youth leading the way because it is their future and their generation that is going to be uh, most directly affected by what's happening. Do you think that it's actually going to take some kind of natural disaster and really catastrophic consequences to get the action that's required from government? Well, clearly, I mean, we're, we're, we don't see that kind of leadership uh, coming from, from the current government. The current government is made up of people that in large measure deny uh, uh, what is happening in terms of global warming and climate change. Uh, so it may very well require that kind of uh, upheaval and that kind of uh, uh, awakening to take place. And it can only take place, I suppose, through through some kind of natural disaster. But one would hope that one would have enlightened leadership and one would hope that one would that we would see this coming also from the opposition parties and uh, so far unfortunately at least with the official opposition and with the current government we're not seeing this happen and uh, so one would hope to see this uh, come through without that sort of thing happening as far as a natural disaster is concerned we seem seem to be sitting on a time bomb which is the Alberta tar sands that is, uh, of, you know, uh, the, the most destructive uh, 
in, uh, in most environmentally destructive uh, uh, industrial project to be found on the face of the planet, and it's uh, and it's sitting in our own backyard, and uh, and yet we don't seem to be aware of what what's really going on there, and most Canadians are sleepwalking through this period of time. Well, so Tony, if it has to be a natural disaster that that, that wakes us up, then so be it. Uh, but uh, at the, in the meantime, we're also, as I say, uh, dealing with uh, this, this enormously destructive project on our own doorstep, and we still don't seem to be aware of what's going on. Well, here on Alert, we had a, uh, an interview with Mike Hudima, and he is the Tar Sands point person for Greenpeace, and he described for us civil disobedience that occurred this year in the Tar Sands, uh, where dozens of protesters from Greenpeace managed to get on site and lock themselves down. Now, two things. Why is this type of action so rare, or is it actually happening and we're just not hearing about it? Well, partly spurred on by the, the, the kind of uh, actions that uh, Mike laid out for you and the kind of uh, activity that took place in the tar sands, we're see- we are seeing some, some civil disobedience beginning to emerge, and especially among young people. Um, back in October 20th, uh, the weekend of October uh, 23, 24, uh, there was uh, a, uh, a big conference here in Ottawa called Power Shift, which brought together youth activists from across uh, the country, around a thousand of them. And um, part of the activities that took place there was training and preparing for civil disobedience. Since then, <clears throat> since the Power Shift Conference, there has been uh, uh, a series of uh, civil disobedience activities that have taken place. It began in the House of Commons uh, 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 shortly after that uh, Power Shift uh, Conference, and then uh, in uh, in, um, in in writing offices of uh, of uh, of conservative parliamentarians across the country, there have been six parliament six conservative MPs whose offices have been occupied by uh, by uh, uh, protesters and civil, exercising civil disobedience. And these youth activists have uh, have really uh, uh, organized quite well, quite. Uh, you know, strategically across the country in terms of these riding offices. And there have been six offices occupied, and over 30 people have been arrested uh, as a result of that action, and all of those have been youth activists. So I think something is beginning to emerge. And then today in the House of Commons, in uh, in the Standing Committee on the Environment, uh, there were... uh, and several protesters uh, that uh, youth activists who uh, who uh, staged a sit-in uh, were removed today by the police from the uh, House of Commons. Uh, so again, uh, there is a further escalation of that activity, and I think we're going to see more of it. We're going to see more of it happening during the sta- different stages of the uh, of the uh, Copenhagen conference, and we're going to see. Uh, uh, I think in a post-Copenhagen uh, period, uh, an escalation of this youth activism. Well, let's talk about post-Copenhagen. Give us uh, some more of your thoughts about what's going to happen after the conference, what needs to happen. Well, once again, we need to be taking uh, the government here to task at all levels. We're seeing uh, some fairly important moves by a number of the provincial governments uh, uh, particularly Quebec and to some extent Ontario and even British Columbia, uh, where we see some signif- 
fairly significant activities or movements taking place in terms of tar- targets and emission targets and, and dealing with the, the, the challenge of climate change itself. But we're going to have to see much more pressure exerted on the federal government. You can't have just components of our and regional components uh, uh, taking action alone. Uh, this action needs to be uh, concerted right across the country, and uh, and it needs to be. We need to see real leadership at the federal level, and so there's got to be pressure not only on the government but on the opposition parties to to really to really come to. Uh, come to some strong leadership on this. So that's one thing that needs to happen. But secondly, in my view anyway, it isn't enough just to talk about carbon emission targets and, and to focus our attention on that alone. We've got to start to make some deliberate strategic moves in transforming the economy. And at this point in time and in this moment, we need to use, utilize the opportunity of what is happening around climate change and global warming to, to really rally people for a fundamental change in our economic model. How about and the some examples? Tony Clark, we sp- spoke about this before, whereas we currently are the drawers of water, the hewers of wood, which is not uh, the solution. So give us some examples of uh, how we can uh, achieve what you were just describing. Well, among other things, I mean, first of all, we really do need to take a whole new look at uh, what what it means for a country in a cold climate like Canada to really take uh, seize hold of uh, climate change and do something with it. And so that means, for example, we we really do need to have a uh, a, a massive uh, uh, public uh, uh, retrofitting program right across the country where we invest in conservation, where we invest in. Uh, in, uh, in making it possible for us to, to uh, conserve energy in a whole new way. Secondly, we need to um, put a big emphasis on uh, mass uh, urban transit and, and, transit, uh, and uh, public transit, pardon me, uh, within cities and between cities. And we need to come up with a major investment in that. We have to start taking, in other words, start, start reducing uh, the dependence upon the private car and moving towards mass urban transit and making that a, a fundamental goal around which we organize and make things happen. Thirdly, we need to uh, um, we need to invest heavily in renewable energy sources and be strategic about which energy sources are going to which renewable energy sources are the are the directions we need to take and we need to start. In, 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 in investing in those renewable energy sources and at the same time drawing down on our dependence upon uh, and our addiction to fossil fuels. And we need to have a strategic uh, program of activity that will move us in this direction. Those are just three concrete, more or less concrete examples of the kinds of things we need to do. But in the process of doing that, we need to be conscious about the fact we're going, to, going about changing both the models of production and the models of consumption that are at the heart of the current economic model that we have today. And that means that we, uh, we need to really uh, uh, start to look much more critically at uh, the kind of uh, uh, models of consumption and production that we have and fundamentally change them in the direction which is going to help us move towards a greener economy.
This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and we have been speaking to Tony Clark, who is the founder and director of the Polaris Institute, also author of Tar Sands Showdown, Canada, and the New Politics of Oil in an Age of Climate Change. I want to thank you for joining us here on Alert Radio. Be sure to pick up the latest copy of Canadian Dimension magazine, publishing for 46 years this month with a feature article on End Times in Copenhagen by Joel Covell, who appeared on last week's episode of Alert Radio. As president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, Penny Stewart's in a good position to tell us about the state of Canadian university funding, teaching programs, hiring, and so forth in the light of the economic crisis. Penny, we welcome you to Alert Radio. Great, thank you. Give us a rundown with some examples of situations you're most familiar with. So first off, what's been the response to the cutbacks by university faculty and students? Well, maybe I could start with with saying something about the cutbacks first. Sure. And that that what um, what we've seen, I think, in Canada and and I guess worldwide as well, uh, really since the 1980s, has been a trend towards privatizing public education. So, with funding um, by by ni- you know, if you think about 19- 1990s, government grants made up probably 80% of total university operating revenues. By 2007, however, government grants made up only 58% of operating revenues, and that meant that all the rest of the money had to come essentially from students and their families. So what we've been facing is a completely inadequate funding funding uh, situation. And this has had two impacts, I think, on students, and I'll get to their reactions in a few minutes. Sure. But Tuition fees have skyrocketed over the past 10 years. With a few exceptions, Quebec, Newfoundland to some extent, B.C. until recently, fees have increased more than 250% since 1991. And if you think about the situation in the uh, professional schools like law, dentistry, medicine, where tuition fees have been deregulated, they're even higher. And so you can imagine what that means to students. Uh, Many of them see that finances are just a real barrier to access to higher education. We've all heard about, about mounting student debt, and I know personally from students that I teach at York University that they are crushed by debt, huge debt year after year, questions of accessibility, higher fees. There's lots of evidence suggests that higher fees pose a real barrier, especially to moderate and low-income students. The other, I think, effect of, of inadequate funding has been a real decline in the proportion of full-time academic teaching staff. So we have a growing casualization of contingent labor. For example, in the United States this year, nearly 60% of positions of teaching faculty are part-time. And this is a worldwide problem. In Latin America, rises to about 80%. Um, This leads to a huge crisis in our profession. I have uh, colleagues who teach one course, say, at York, one course at Ryerson, maybe pick something up at U of T, but maybe have to drive to Waterloo. So they're really, you know, in some parts of the world, they're called taxi cab professors. 
Right. Well, and I mean, if everything is going part-time, like you mentioned, uh, that would make a lot of sense that it would be labeled that. Let's talk a little bit about, there was a situation in the U.S. a few weeks ago where Alert interviewed a professor at the University of California in Berkeley. And so you had mentioned that there were cutbacks in the States. What about other places in the world, Penny? Oh, yes. We've seen um, cutbacks right across the world, I think, in funding. Um, in, In Europe, for example, where there's traditionally being, especially in Western Europe, no tuition fees. Uh, we see governments trying to institute institute fees. So in Germany, students have, uh, there'd be massive demonstrations. Fees were first introduced only in 2007 there for students, and students have been protesting vigorously. There have been demonstrations in all the major cities last summer. And most recently, and what's interesting about German students is they've taken their complaint to uh, UNESCO, uh, they've complained, left a complaint there about wow. fees and, and its impact on students. And in places like Hungary and Latvia, in, especially in the Eastern uh, Bloc countries where they've really been hit with, an econom- with, with the impact of the economic crisis, fees have risen so sharply that they've seen, even though despite there's increased demand for higher education, they've seen a drop-off in enrollment with people just not being able to afford to go. And I mean, like you said, this is a worldwide problem, not just a Canadian problem. Oh, absolutely. And so let's talk about 2010 and whether or not we see a fiscal squeeze on university being short term or whether by next year it'll dissipate a bit. Oh, I think I think we um, we shouldn't think of this as a short term. This has to do with really um, a very long-term. I mean, I think that's why I was saying it starts sort of, we have to trace it back to the 80s. It's true we have an economic crisis right now, but what we're talking about, I think, in the universities and colleges, what we're seeing is really, I would put it as an all-out assault on public education as as the idea of a public good, that I think that privatized education has been a long-standing push by governments across the world and I attended the World Congress of Higher Education this past summer, and there this was very much uh, discussed, the whole idea of, of privatizing education, of rationalizing education, of students paying for their own education, as education as a private good, really, really was being um, promulgated as the way of the world to come, and very much in line with the OECD and World Bank thinking, I think. And so where does the future rest in regards to um, how we're going to see ourselves uh, get out of this? I mean, if, if there's government cutting back and, and asking universities to cut back, how do the people, the faculty, the students, what's our job, what's our role? to try and change that? I think that one of the things we need to be very clear in, our, in doing is articulating to our governments that we see education as a public good. That we, I mean, this is always a matter of public policy. Um, and I think that, that for far too long we've sort of absorbed these cuts and absorbed the cuts and students have paid more and more and more. And I think really that as, as taxpayers, you know, students are also taxpayers, and they're certainly their, fa- their families are too. Of course. So they pay on both ends, right? Of course. I think that we have to make very clear to our policymakers that education is a public good and that we're, we're willing to pay for publicly funded, accessible education. Because, of course, in all of this, the victims of, of kind of endless cutbacks are, 
are people without great resources, right? We haven't talked yet about Aboriginal students, but they get they also have had a very difficult time uh, in this in in this climate. So I think we have to be, and certainly my own association and the Canadian Federation of Students have been absolutely vigorously campaigning with this government to um, to make good funding funding efforts. And so has that been successful? Well, we've had our successes, I can, I can put it that way. <laughs> um, CAUT, my own organization, was very, very critical and very active in challenging um, Minister Goodyear last year about science funding. And we were joined, I think, after we, we initiated the campaign, but I think we were joined then by thousands of scientists across Canada who really pushed with us to have the government really take seriously the need for for funding. And I'm, I'm hoping we're starting to see some movement there. And certainly um, the Canadian Federation of Students uh, also has claimed a win, I think, in getting the um, student grants program, a needs-based program uh, created about two years ago. So I think, you know, I think there's, I think there's results when we're... Um, when we're together mm-hmm. and when we're very strong about, about our values. Um, in the end, you know, more and more, I think that we need to convince governments that they need to use the tax system, right? That they right. can't forever claim that they'll never increase taxes, but they'll, they'll just keep slashing education. And right? We're the easiest to slash when you're trying to fix your deficits. Right. So and I think in the short run we're probably in for a, a very rough couple of years, unfortunately. But um, but we'll take the small victories along the way. That's right. And we'll look to 2010, uh, Penny, and see, see what the future holds. Yes, indeed. Thank you so very much. Very welcome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Penny Stewart, president of the Canadian Association of University Teachers. This is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. And on today's show, some memories of some very fine folk musicians who have, in the last week, passed on. Two of the greatest artists that I know and have affected my life. Well, the first is, is Bess Hawes, Bess Hawes Lomax, the daughter of, of Alan Lomax, the granddaughter of John Lomax, the great folk collector. And along with Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Arthur Stern and Sis Cunningham, and she was a member of the Almanac Singers. The Almanac Singers put out that wonderful album around 1950 on Folkways. The album is called Talking Union, and that album has become the classic union album ever made. I think I think the first time I saw it was when my sister bought it when I was 13. I know almost every word of every song on this album, and this album has affected my life in a pretty fundamental way. So when Bess Hawes died a few days ago, it really was a big sadness for me. So here she is, singing a lead on Miner's Lifeguard. Miner's life is like a sailor's Board a ship to cross the waves Every day his life's in danger Still he bears 
singers with Miner's Lifeguard and the lead vocal at the beginning was Bess Hawes Lomax. The other person that died in the last week is Liam Clancy. Liam Clancy was the youngest and the last living member of Tommy Makeham and the Clancy Brothers, who some of you might remember were the definitive group that brought Irish music to North America and who actually brought Irish music in a really serious way to the entire folk community across the English-speaking world. They were, they're lovely men. They were, my favorite album that they put out was a, a, an album called Rising of the Moon, which is a lovely album full of rebel songs. And, uh, and, and I think probably they, Bob Dylan talked about, about the Clancy Brothers and about Liam Clancy as being one of the pivotal singers in his life. And so, you know, the, this character was a, an amazing character. And as he died, the folk community across North America has been mourning and mourning. He was a great writer and a great singer. Uh, we're going to play traditional songs today. So here is, here is Liam Clancy with 10 and 9. They fairly make you work 
Are your ten I wish the day was done Running up and doing the pass is no fun Shifting peace and spinning War weft and twine There's no much pleasure living Off of ten and nine The world is ill-divided Them that works the hardest Are the least provided But I must lie contented Dark days are fine To feed and clothe my babies Half of ten And we poor shifters can't get no rest. Shifting bobbins, coarse and fine. They fairly make you work for your ten. And the mice were squealing in my prison cell And the old triangle Went jingle jangle All along the banks of the Royal Canal To begin the morning the warder bawling, get out of bed and clean up your cell. And the old triangle went jingle jangle all along the banks of the Royal Canal. Fine spring evening, I like lay dreaming, and the seagulls were wheeling high above the wall, while the old triangle went jingle jangle all along the bank. Of the Royal Canal Oh, the day was dying And the wind was sighing As I lay there crying In my prison cell 
and the old triangle. I went to jingle jangle all along the banks of the Royal Canal. Now in the female prison. There are seventy women, and I wish it was with 'em that I did do well. Then the old triangle could go jingle jangle all along the bank. Of the Royal Canal. That was Liam Clancy with the Royal Canal, and before that, ten and nine. This is Mitch Podolik. This is music is the weapon. I'll see you after the new year. That is it for Alert Radio for 2009. We want to thank everyone for tuning in. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm Chris Alby. Happy New Year! Our thanks, as usual, to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic, and Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the left in seven days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Podolik with Music Is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine, and you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com. <laughs> <laughs>